It sounds like you're saying people should ask questions. Oh, 100%. Right? Is that really the base of what you're doing? You're yeah. just reading the text and you're asking questions. You're trying to think of who you're talking to? Yes, but there, every question, every... <laughs> where You're about to drive me into something very deep. Let's go. This study references the book Nehemiah, I Am, Taking Authority Over Identity by Mike Hilson. Get your own copy of the book today on Amazon. Well, hey, y'all, welcome back to our look into the book of Nehemiah. And we're kind of using the resource uh, that we've written here in Nehemiah, I Am, Taking Authority Over Identity. We've made a transition um, last time we were together in the last session. We made a transition from um, from setting the reality God has for you to sustaining the reality. That's probably the best way to say that. We're, we're no longer setting our, our labels, our identity. We're now sustaining our identity. And yes, God will change our identity from time to time, but, but, but often what happens is that core initial identity, I am a child of God, becomes the core identity. Then there are other things. I am a child of God. I am a pastor. I am a child of God. I am a worship leader. I am a child of God. I am a teacher in the local high school. I am a child of God. I, You see, this primary I am a child of God is the one that stays. And then there are others that God hones down inside of us as we go forward. And so what happens is we, we started talking last week about the fact that we've got to defend that we've got to we've got to sustain ourselves in this new reality. Now, when we get to chapter eight, we're going to enter into a lot of practical how-to's because in chapter eight, what we got is we've got Nehemiah and the people entering the city, uh, and they're entering it to abide in it, to reside there. They're not going to live in their blessing, which is where we left uh, the last session off. And so as they do that, there are some steps they take to move into this city that I think are profound that we ought to take a look at. And so, and so it says here, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, it says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. The very first thing they did when they came in to celebrate the wall, the very first thing they did was they brought out the book of the law and they started reading the scripture. They they went back to, we need to follow the God who has brought us this far. Look, if you are truly going to establish and be able to live in the blessing God has given you, you're going to need to be spiritually intentional. I think quite frankly, often we are somewhat spiritually, how do I say this? Spiritually ethereal and we are we are professionally intentional. Let me say this this way. What I mean by that is we are professionally intentional. We set paths for ourselves professionally. We need this education. We need that class. We need this continuing education. I need to move up the ladder to this job, to this job, to this job, to this job. I need to go this far, save this much money. I retire. I, we're very professionally intentional. But sometimes we are terribly ethereal or terribly unintentional with our spiritual lives. 
I think you've got to intentionally get your spiritual life into the center of who you are. This is a very practical thing. They are opening up a city that they are rebuilding. Now they're rebuilding internally. They've been rebuilding the wall around it. Now it's protected. Now they're going to have to rebuild internally because remember last chapter, the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So they've got to rebuild the internals of this city. But, but they've got the wall built. And the first thing they do is spiritual. Listen, there is a reason that church worship in most Protestant or Catholic settings and most Christian settings is held on Sunday morning because it's the first thing you do on the first day of the week. That's intentional inside of Christianity. We intentionally went to Sunday morning because we're celebrating the resurrection every week. That The Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead. The first day of the week is when he rose from the dead. But it also gives us this thing that we start our week, first thing we do, first day of the week, with worship, with God. It is a spiritually intentional practice. You need those in your life. You must bring Jesus to the very the very beginning point. You must bring your spiritual life to the very beginning point of where you go. Now watch. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. It's very important in this Old Testament book, by the way. I don't want you to, I don't want you to blow past this. In our modern world, it would be, well, of course it's the women and the men. No, no, no. In this Old Testament book, this is huge. This is God elevating the position of women so that they could actually even be there listening to the word. This is God leveling the playing field because in most other cultures, in fact, in, in some ancient Jewish practice, in most other cultures, though, the, 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 the women would not even have been allowed to be there among the men while they were doing something spiritual. In this case, the women were included. They were invited. They were in the very center of it. So I don't want you to miss that. But I want you to see that we've got to be spiritually intentional, but we must be scripturally faithful. Now, I want you to hear me. An awful lot of the Bible today has fallen into mm, has fallen into a place where it's unpopular. A lot of what the Bible has to say about life, people just consider unpopular. And people would say, well, it's an outdated book and we don't need to follow that anymore. Here's the problem. Scripture has not changed uh, in, in the whole time that it's there. I mean, the, these people, they are reading, Nehemiah and his people are reading from the law of Moses which is written maybe a thousand years before they're standing here. And then we're still reading the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Those are the those are the books that Moses wrote. We're still reading that here, maybe 2,500, 3,000 years after Nehemiah. And so, so the truth of the matter is that, that Scripture has held true through all all of these generations, and it doesn't change. Yes, I know society changes, and I know that 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 cultural norms change. I get that. I live in this world. I see what's going on. But the truth is, we must remain scripturally faithful. If we're not faithful, y'all, if we're not faithful to Scripture, if we don't stand on the Bible, then what is our basis? Are we just another opinion group? I mean, that's what, that's what separates the nation of Israel. I want everybody to listen to what I'm about to say. We will be known and remembered for our distinctives, 
Not for the ways we're just like the rest of the world, but for the ways we're different. And Scripture is what sets us apart. It's what set the Jewish people apart from all of the societies that surround them. You don't remember those societies, but you know about them. Why? Because they did something distinctive. We will be remembered for being distinctive, not for being just like everybody else, not for just being another opinion group, but for standing on something that's been around for thousands of years. We must be scripturally faithful. I, I wish, I actually, I actually, actually wish I had given an entire session to this one thing, because quite frankly, I think it's what's, it's what's failing us in our current culture, and it's what's failing the church in our current day. Churches that 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 detach themselves from scriptural faithfulness are not going to make it because they're just they become just another opinion group and they're following the majority of cultural thought or they're fighting the majority of cultural thought they're not standing on generationally old truth that comes to us from the bible sorry there's my soapbox let me keep going so then it gets to to verse verse 4 Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion i'm going to give you this point cuz i want to make it here we must be visibly worshipful. I, I want you to see this. Ezra stood on a high wooden platform. He did not hide behind anything when he read the law of God, when he read the scripture of God. I've often said you cannot preach God's word and be apologetic. You must preach God's word with authority because it's authoritative. And if you don't preach it with authority, that in and of itself is sin. This is what Ezra is doing. He's standing up on a platform built for the occasion. And he reads, beside him to his right was, and I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names, and on his left were another group of people. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened the, opened the book, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Barry, Sherebiah, all of the Levites that are mentioned here instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. We must be visibly worshipful. When we hide our Christianity, when we hide our joy at, at hearing the word of God, when we, you know, when we hide our adherence to the scripture that is the basis of everything we become or believe, then we fail to give glory to God. Do you realize to hide the truth of the Bible we actually believe in? If you actually believe the Bible and you try to hide its truth, you are literally saying to God, I'm ashamed of you. Why would you do that? How could you do that? How, how, how does that make any sense? If we're hiding away part of what God said, then we're acting sh as if God is shameful or as if his word is shameful when what's shameful is the way the world is acting when they are detached from, un, un, unanchored from the truth of God's word. The truth is that the scripture is worth it. And when we are spiritually intentional and when we are scripturally faithful, it will help us to properly be visually, visually worshipful. Now, I don't mean by this that we should get out there and be in people's faces and be rude about our God is the true God and your God is a liar and you're going to hell. And there's I, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm also not, while I'm not saying be a jerk, I'm also saying don't be a coward. 
because I think half the church is running off the world because they're being a jerk. And I'm afraid the other half of the church is running off the world because they're just cowards and there's nothing here worth following. The truth is we got to find a balance. Visibly worshipful does not mean offensive. It means I'm not going to hide who I am and what I believe from you. And I'm going to celebrate it. And if you don't want to celebrate it with me, that's fine. You don't have to. But that doesn't mean I'm going to go hide in a corner just because you don't want to join me. We've got to be visibly worshipful. We jump down to verse 9, and it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and and send some of those who have had nothing prepared, and send some to those who have had nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Levites uh, calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Listen, when you encounter God's word, especially if you've been away from it for a while, when you re-encounter God's word, it will make you feel like 900 pounds of sin on a popsicle stick. Y'all all right? It'll make you feel like you've done everything wrong and you'll want to mourn. You'll want to repent. And they did. Those people mourned and repented. They're on there with their face on the ground before God. But then once the law had been read and they all amended, it, Ezra and Nehemiah and all the priests said to them, no, this is not a day for mourning. This is a day for joy. Here, be spiritually intentional, be scripturally faithful, be visibly worshipful, and be deeply joyful. God has done so much for us. I mean, look, if we don't, if you can't enjoy life once God has forgiven you, once the Holy Spirit has filled you, then 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 what are you doing? What's going on? I, I know, I know. I, look, I've been in the church my whole life. I know Christians who seem to measure their holiness by the depth of their frown. And they're just, I mean, I don't even want to be around them. And they're my family. I mean, I don't mean literal blood family. I don't have any blood family like that. But they're spiritual family that I, that I look at and I'm like, I, I've been to churches before. They're not joyful. They're just angry. They're just angry and they're, and they're, they're lashing out at everybody. They're lashing out at each other sometimes. Y'all, if there's not joy inside your church, what are you doing? Can, can I be honest? I've told people they get mad about something in the church. Usually it's something crazy like the color of the carpet or the way we decorate the building. And they get all mad and they start yelling at me. And I've literally said to people so many times in my career, your life is too short for you to spend your life upset in this church when there's a whole lot of other better options out there. Go find one that brings joy to you and go there. You say, well, aren't you going to lose all your members and lose all your income? I, I, I don't know. It hadn't happened yet. But here's the thing. There are too many good churches for you to be mad in this one. And life is too short for you to spend your life mad inside this church. Why would you even do that? And if there's no joy in the church, I have literally, look, I, 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 had a, I had a ministry in a church one time where they were all mad at each other. It was a ladies' ministry, and they were all mad at each other. And they would, they would elect some lady who had just come to the church and didn't know any better as the women's director. And the, then they would all be mad at her, and then she would get upset and get her feelings hurt, and she would leave the church. This happened like two or three times in a row. 
And I, and I, and I, I finally just, I, I sat him down and I said, I'm shutting it down. So what do you mean? You're not allowed to hold women's ministry anymore. Why? Because you're hurting people. If there's no joy in it, there's no God in it. Y'all, we got to find joy in this thing. Spiritually intentional, scripturally faithful, visibly worshipful, and deeply joyful. But, watch. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, of the, uh, teacher, and gave attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had, had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of this seventh month, and that they should proclaim his word and spread it throughout the towns in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from, and from myrtles, from palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters. They went back and they found this, the, the, the festival of tents. They found something in the law they'd forgotten. They found something in the scripture that they had not been following. And when God revealed it to them again, they changed their plans. Watch, I want to show you something. You must be, watch these in order. You must be spiritually intentional, scripturally faithful. See how we're building? Scripturally faithful. I'm, I'm faithful to the scripture. Visibly worshipful. I'm not hiding this. I'm following the scripture and then, and then deeply joyful and I'm happy about what I'm doing, right? If all of that is in place, then God will show you things inside of your life or your practice that need to change. And at that moment, you need to be consistently flexible because if God changes the service, you need to let him do it. Some years ago, we were holding the, a, a huge Christmas Eve service. It was going to be massive. We were in a place with thousands of seats, and we had rented the place, so everything had to be set up, and we had to it, – it was, it was nuts, y'all. It was nuts. And I remember walking in, and the stress level was extremely high because there's so much going on, and I left. I said, I'll be back later. And I actually went to a Christmas Eve service at another church. And on the way after leaving that service, I stopped at a gas station. I bought some crackers and some grape juice. And I walked in, and they weren't through setting up, and we had to go in 90 minutes. I said, stop everything. They said, what? I said, stop everything and bring everybody here. And they stopped all of their prep. Everybody came to the center. And I said, this is very stressful. I have to remind you why you're here. You're not here for the lights. You're not here for the sound. You're not here for the show. You're here for the joy of the Lord because on this day we celebrate that God sent his son to us. And we held communion. We prayed. And then I said, now, you can go back and finish your work. I wanted to prove to them you had to stay flexible. And can I tell you, that event went off beautifully. Everything worked because I think we just got our hearts in the right place for the first time. Y'all, the truth is, if I'm going to defend who I am, if I'm going to defend the identity God's given me, I got to always flow with him. But that'll bring me joy. That'll bring me joy. And it'll keep me scripturally founded. And it'll keep me spiritually intentional. So for anybody watching that might not know how to put Jesus first, this was a really, really good lesson. Um, great guide because it turns out this story really does lay it out. But what I need to ask is, how did you just do that? Like, this is a story, this is a narrative mm -hmm. about an actual historical event. And you just turned that into basically a masterclass on 
on how to walk with Jesus, how to know God, how to put him first in your life. So when I read the Bible, that's not what immediately happens. I don't look at a historical event and say, oh, this is a lesson for me. So what are you doing gymnastics-wise, mentally, <laughs> Bible interpretation? Can you give us the how-to behind all how you got there? Here, Okay, Here, here's the basic Yes, this is going to turn a little more into a sermon writing session if I do that, but yes. Well, bring us um, there. We need to go there because I'm, I'm scratching my head the whole time I was just listening to that. And I'm like, this is great. If you start the reading, if you start reading the Bible from the standpoint that, okay, let, I'm, I'm going to speak as a preacher, but this works if you're if you're not a pastor, if you're not preaching, you can still do this. If I start reading a section of Scripture with the assumption that the scripture is going to outline itself, then I begin reading looking for an outline inside of it. I'm reading looking for a pattern. And there are patterns. In, in this particular chapter, there's a, there's a distinct pattern of what they did. He makes the point that they built a specific platform for Ezra to stand up on so that he could read the word, so that everybody could see him. I know that seems like something you might just pass over, but there's this specific point of saying that we are going to put the priest who is reading the scripture so high, we're going to elevate that person so high that everyone can see him and hear him. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that speaks to that speaks to scripturally faithful. That speaks to vis- visibly worshipful. He, they are visibly doing this. And then everybody is visibly getting down on their faces at one point worshiping God. So you begin to see this thing start to come together, but it's always there's always an order to it. Mm-hmm. And they had to be intentional because it's the first thing they're doing once the walls are finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get to chapter, uh, I don't know, I can't remember whether it's chapter 10, I think it's chapter 10. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about a celebration there that is... That I would, dude. I want to repeat this celebration so bad, you know. But but at any rate, there's a celebration there that is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so and so, I, I you'll see the same type outline there. Mm-hmm. But I think if you read it that way, if you assume it's there, then frankly, I think you'll find the outline itself. Jesus said to they asked him, "What is the greatest law and the, what is the greatest commandment?" Yeah. He answered, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor yourself." There's a four-point sermon. Mm-hmm. Or five-point, if you want to say, love the Lord your God, that's one. Now, how do I love him? Well, with all my heart. Okay, what does that mean, internal? Mm-hmm. With, all, with all my mind, my thought, my thought processes. Yeah. You know, there, it outlines. Yeah, I'm so I, I this can, will outline the same way. Can, Every part of the Bible, I believe, outlines that way. Yeah, and I can see that. But with the example you gave about Jesus, he's, he's clearly teaching you right, something. Right, this right. is like very clear, like di- didactic but, literature. But we're talking about historical narrative. And I know there's like embedded in there, the author is not writing this just so that we could have a historical right. account. He knows it teaches, but how do you get there? Because it's not like Nehemiah is like, "Hey, pause. Press, um, you're going to get a little worship I don't, lesson but, here, everybody." But uh, I don't think you have to get there because, it, you, especially these stories, the Old Testament stories, mm-hmm. most of them are are oral tradition before they get written down. Especially, go back to Moses. Moses is oral tradition before Moses writes it down. Right? And he he's writing down about Garden of Eden. That's an oral tradition. When, when those stories are told and retold, they are told and retold to teach lessons. Therefore, they are told in outline form. The, the format is there because the storyteller wants you to capture a truth. Look for the truth the storyteller wants, to, wants you to capture, and then look at how the storyteller got to that truth. 
and you'll see the outline. It'll be in there. I, I, I okay. I, I have this fear. You know, you're my, you, you're the, you're the one who trains me in the gym, right? Mm-hmm. And so you do these things that infuriate me. Like you'll just jump over a 48 inch box and say, just do it this way. <laughs> you know, just put your hand here and bring off that leg and do this, and and all of a sudden you're up 48 inches. You got one foot on the box and you're jumping off the other side. I watched you jump over a 48 inch box the other day. Okay, I can't do that. And you'll say, just do this. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll go, it, it, no, it doesn't work yeah, that way. Yeah. So I have a little bit of a fear that I'm doing that to you right now. A little bit. That's why <laughs> but, I ask you um, another question. <laughs> you know, but I think if you look for it, it's just like this. If you look for it and then find the skills, work on the skills long-term mm-hmm. enough to be able to get there. By the way, I can almost do what you do on a 48-inch box, on a 40-inch box now, because yep. I was almost there. Leveling up, yeah. So, uh, so it's in the same way, I think if you start looking for that outline, you'll start finding it. It sounds like you're saying people should ask questions. Oh, 100%. Right? Is that really the base of what you're doing? You're yeah. just reading the text and you're asking questions. You're trying to think of who you're talking to? Yes, but there, every question, every... <laughs> We're, you're about to drive me into something very deep. Let's go. Uh, every every deep theological position, at somewhere inside of it, has a philosophical position, mm-hmm. and the philosophical position drives you to the end of your theological application. So what you've got to look for is not putting your philosophical position inside of this chapter. What is the philosophical position that Nehemiah is taking here? Well, he's trying to build a culture. Mm-hmm. He's trying to build a city. Yeah. He's trying to establish a, a, a city that can survive on its own, that can that people can get fed, that they can get food in, that they can get water in, that they can get sewage out, that they can get trash out. He's trying he's got to do all of that. I know, I know we want this to be spiritual, but dude, he's got to do all that. Mm-hmm. And he's doing all of that, but in the midst of doing all of that, he's trying to st- to say to them, okay, stop doing that. Mm. Now come here. Why? Because we need to be spiritual for a minute. But but I haven't finished the sewage trench. Just stop. Come here. Because the first thing we're going to do is be spiritual. So he's he's made, he's being spiritually intentional, mm-hmm. and he's teaching them that. And I and I think when you look at the overarching story of what's going on in this moment, mm-hmm. the fact that he makes everybody stop and do this mm-hmm. is so significant. Yeah, you're thinking about the intent of the author, right? Yes. You're you're trying to get your yes. mind into why would he tell the story in the way right. that he has? Why would he design the literature right. and the structure and the way he's talking in a way that would communicate? But I want so, to be careful that I don't put my personality into that author. Yeah, we can't write. Right. There's a word for that, right? I, no, it's I, called I, heresy. Yeah, heresy, eisegesis. <laughs> you like putting your, our own meaning or right. reading reading right. something that's not there into it. So we're looking to get what they intended to communicate. Right out and you do that by asking questions and studying and learning so anybody who's maybe reading nehemiah or the bible for the first time that's that's a really simple principle to help do what you just did right and you don't have to be all that complex with it since we're into it this far i i basically i have other sources i'll go to but i basically have two uh commentaries that i'll use one is very thick and heavy assumes the knowledge of hebrew and greek that i don't have to the level they assume Mm -hmm. Uh, so i have to look some things up Yep. It forces me to dig, and but but it's it's someone speaking from a purely academic world, mm-hmm. and then the other is written on a much lower shelf, and it's it's more it's more just backyard uh, backyard commentary, if you will, and mm-hmm. and this gives it to me on a much more a much lower shelf. I can read those two, 
and by the way, they come from different doctrinal positions within Protestant Christianity. So I can read those mm -hmm. two, get get a basic take on, okay, here's what's going on, and then layer on top of that that you're going to take the Scripture seriously, i.e. what Nehemiah said in the book is what Nehemiah meant to say. Then, uh, then, then you're gonna. This is the academic one is gonna give you the cultural relevance and the actual the Greek words and their their actual definitions and meanings and how the, uh, anything like that. The the lower shelf uh, commentary is gonna give me a way to look at it that's applicable in modern day. And then I look at it and layer onto all of that. Here's what I see and here's what I think the Holy Spirit's showing me. And uh, but I can't violate the base of it is the scripture. Mm -hmm. The commentaries are not scripture. My layering on top is not scripture. Mm -hmm. These are all just ways, lenses through which I'm going to look at the scripture. The scripture is what matters. Mm -hmm. That's great. So scripture is very central in how we put Jesus first, how we have Absolutely. God first in our lives, how we succeed in the ways that Nehemiah wants these people to succeed. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, they had something very different than what we have today, right? They in the story, it's the book of the law that he mm -hmm. opens and has Ezra read. Ezra it's back. likely the Pentateuch, right. the first five Probably books. Probably the books of mm -hmm. Moses. Yeah. So tell everybody a little bit about why you think what we have today is better than what they had. <laughs> well, I think there's two reasons. I said, first of all, you've got, you've got the Pentateuch, which is probably what they're reading. We also have the added, the added vantage point of, uh, of the history books, the, the, the prophets, all of that in the Old Testament, and the, and the poetry books. Mm -hmm. We have the added value of all those in the Old Testament. They would have had Psalms, and they would have had Proverbs. They would have had those. So but we have the added value of, of the prophets and the, um, and the history books. But then you come into the New Testament, and what we have is Jesus, uh, the Son of God, coming to earth, the whole account of him being here in the Gospels. But I think the real answer to why what we have is better is we're not attached to law because of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we're not forced to follow the teaching of a priest because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows us to read yeah. and to see um, and to understand. The Holy Spirit will illuminate to us parts of Scripture that we don't understand. And pause right there because he worked a lot differently in the times of Nehemiah. Yes. He would come upon people, yes. from what we can tell, and empower people for certain Individuals roles. at individual moments. And even come in, we see that language used a few mm -hmm. times, peppered throughout, but really in the New Testament, the relationship between us and the Holy Spirit takes a whole different stance. It does. So, so not only do we have a better text, a more complete, full right. picture, but then we also have an inherent relationship right. with the Holy the Spirit. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is coming upon people, mm -hmm. covering them for a moment to accomplish a thing. Yep. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is indwelling people, mm -hmm. walking with every single day, being the sustainer and the and the and the empowerment. Mm. So.